0: Marine protected areas are areas of the ocean where a government has placed limits on human activity. These areas range from no take, no impact, no access, and multiple use. Basically determining how much human impact is supposed to take place in these areas.
1: The effectiveness of these ocean parks also ranges between actually enforced and protected to completely unenforceable parks that only really exist on paper and not in the real world. Making sure that these MPAs that are put into place are actually affected is super important to ensure that the 30 by 30 initiative, a worldwide initiative for governments to designate 30 percent of the Earth's land and ocean areas as protected areas by 2030, is actually effective.
0: On today's episode, we speak with representatives of the NGO WildAid and some of the partners they're working with to make sure that ocean parks are enforceable, realistic, and work for the local population. Join us now for an all-new ocean, ocean Science,
1: Science Radio. Radio. Welcome back to Ocean Science Radio, the podcast that brings you the latest, greatest, and sometimes deepest stories in the ocean. I'm ocean and climate communications specialist, Andrew Cornblatt,
0: And I am shark ecologist, aquanaut, and aspiring badass, Francis Farabaugh. WildAid is an environmental organization focused on reducing global consumption of wildlife products and to increase local support for conservation efforts. This includes ocean wildlife. To get us kicked off learning about their work around marine protected areas, let's meet Megan Brosnan.
2: My name is Megan Brosnan, and I am the Senior Director for the Global Marine Program of WildAid.
1: So before we get into Wild Aids programs, something to mention about Megan that really sets her apart in the marine protection NGO world is that she has a background in enforcement. She used to be in the Coast Guard.
2: Yeah, I I really got lucky. I got stationed in Alaska kicking and screaming. The Coast Guard calls them orders for a reason, right? It's they're not suggestions. You're moving, you're moving to Cordova, Alaska. You're moving to Cordova, Alaska. But that's where. I was living in a community that lived and died by the strength of the salmon run, having breakfast with the people who chose how to manage fisheries. The first time I really directly saw how leveling the playing field, how being a law enforcement officer on a fishing vessel, which is not particularly sexy when you compare it to the cool, you know, Coast Guard missions of chasing down drug runners or something, right? But how it has a, a deep, it's a deep need and it's a important one. I got hooked from that. And I got lucky, right? I went from being the person who was jumping on board fishing vessels, you know, enforcing the laws to the Coast Guard's deputy chief of marine resource enforcement over the years. So I got to see all the different layers that it took to run law enforcement program. I was at Coast Guard headquarters as Marine Protected Areas was really first coming into the forefront. This is before 30 by 30. I think this was even before 20 by 20, right? When Marine Protected Areas were just becoming a more well-known and used conservation tool. We had nonprofits coming to us at Coast Guard headquarters and saying, hey, we we just got this great new Marine Protected Area established. And we realize we have to enforce it. How do we do that? And it just opened my eyes to the fact that I could play a bigger role or there was a bigger need outside of even just the what the U.S. Coast Guard does for that expertise. So I'm really grateful for it.
0: (laughs) And how would Megan say that the experience in a marine enforcement agency lends itself to her work and what WildAid is doing with MPAs?
2: Well, it gives me a huge amount of legitimacy, right? Like every single time we start up a new program, we meet with partner agencies. When we started up our partnership in the Bahamas called the Marine Action Partnership in collaboration with the Nature Conservancy, my first visit, I found myself sitting across the table from the most senior level admiral of the Royal Bahamian Defense Force. You got to be able to speak the language. (laughs) And like, why is that person, that ultimate professional who has built their whole career and lifetime going to listen to a U.S.-based, non-governmental organization and like, think that we're going to add value to them. So being able to sit across from them and for them to know that I have sat where they have sat, I have been freezing on patrols, frustrated, trying to find the illegal fisher that I know is out there somewhere or trying to get a training system into place and having to navigate bureaucracy and figure out what's best and how do you balance the best possible training with how many hours you can possibly pull your officers off the water for training and right being able to articulate that i have been in their shoes number one it, it allows you to gain trust but then number two it just means that my team and i can provide benefit because we've been there we've
0: done it okay so tell us about wild aids marine program
2: WildSaid's marine program is in 14 countries, 75 locations, and we help marine leaders, ocean leaders who are trying to protect their waters, protect their oceans, protect their marine parks by building their capacity to better enforce their waters.
1: Cool. Uh, Okay, Megan, what is the current problem with ocean protection and MPA enforcement? Why isn't simply declaring an area a park enough?
2: Really declaring a location as a park is, it's just the first step, right? Once you have that aspiration, the vision, the outline in place, you have to make sure that it continues to actually be protected. And, you know, sometimes even just declaring a site as a park might put a target on it because you're kind of declaring to the world that it's going to have more fish, it has more beautiful resources. There's a lot of components to implementing a marine protected area or a coastal fishery or whatever you call that area. But one key component is making sure that whatever laws and regulations you put in place are followed, study after study after study of marine protected areas specifically demonstrate that the majority of marine protected areas lack full implementation, including the lack of a full enforcement system.
0: Unlike some other organizations where outside scientists with no cultural connection to the area parachute in and tell locals what is best for them, WildAid has a different strategy.
2: Our work fully depends upon local stakeholders. WildAid is a non-governmental organization, right? We don't own anybody's waters. We don't run any parks. What we do is we support local government leaders and local partners who are doing that work who are making that marine protected area that has been established in law and making it into a reality into a thriving place where where it is rolling so our strategy is to first partner with the right folks and that's everything from park authorities to national police agencies to fisheries agencies usually we are also working with local NGOs.
1: Their belief is that once the right partnerships between stakeholders who have the vision get established, that the next step has to be looking at their enforcement system, especially around their waters.
0: A coastal fishery must have the same five components for there to be a complete marine protection system in place. Surveillance, enforcement, policies, consequences, and a consistent funding source. To support that, there must be training and a mentorship program in place, and there has to be engagement with the local community. Back to Megan.
3: So
2: we partner with those right partners to evaluate the completeness of their marine protection system in each of those five components, and then use that to create a marine protection system plan, which is a vision for what they would like that system to look like. And then we partner with them iteratively year over year. To achieve that vision, our support can be everything from how do you meaningfully engage with your community? What's the best tip line? How should we be surveilling our waters? Do we need people with binoculars or do we need satellites or something in between there? It can be providing advice on their laws and the policies that they're using. That's just a few examples, but you customize it. Our team is a very diverse team. We have folks who have been biologists, who have been park managers, who have been in government. And we have people who have worn the uniform and been in law enforcement roles. We fit them with the right mentor, the the people that they need to help them achieve their vision.
1: In other words, there is no cookie cutter approach for creating and implementing marine protected areas. There's no one size fits all.
2: Definitely not. So we have a we have a framework, we have a template. got that system where you know what components are needed. We apply similar solutions. We have supported developing a standard operating procedure for doing a patrol in a way that makes you most likely to catch an illegal fisher. And we've helped folks in Cuba to do that, and we have helped folks in Ecuador to do that. There can be similar solutions, but every location is different. Every challenge is slightly different, so you have to customize it. That said, that can sound really overwhelming. While you need to customize it with your local partners to meet the local context, the local needs, you've got a pretty standard list of solutions that you can choose from.
0: So how exactly did WildAid's Marine Program get formed?
2: Our program was formed, founded in Ecuador, in the Galapagos. When we first were supporting the Galapagos National Park, and this was over 25 years ago now, they were protecting an area the size of New York State with a single patrol vessel. They were severely under-resourced and really hadn't had the support they needed yet to achieve their enforcement vision for the park. There was extensive shark finning happening inside the park borders tens of thousands of sharks were being poached in a single instance. Over many years, we iteratively supported the park in achieving their aspirations of filling in those gaps. They now have a complete fleet of patrol vessels. They have a control center that monitors vessel traffic inside the park And deploys their vessels whenever they see any suspicious activity happening inside the park. That monitoring center is actually seen as a regional example of how developing country marine parks and marine protected areas can best monitor their waters. They have a fully trained ranger corps, they have a data collection system so that they're capturing the information that they get whenever they are interacting with fishermen or or conducting law enforcement boardings. That's just a few examples of all of the major steps that they have taken. Thanks to all that hard work over the years, they now have a complete marine protection system, and they're home to the densest shark population in the world. Our work's not done there. We are going to continue to, I mean, Galapagos, you can't. (laughs) You can't ever, can't ever, can't leave the Galapagos. And there's always going to be areas for improvement where we can continue to support them. We also have a program in coastal Ecuador. There is both a coastal Ecuador Marine Protected Area network, and then there are places where they have what are called mangrove concessions, which is where mangrove crab fishermen are given exclusive rights to fish in a certain area in collaboration with the local government in exchange you know the fishermen commit to protecting and responsibly managing that area mangroves globally are just being decimated year over year the amount of mangrove cover that we have in the world is decreasing and that's been a challenge in Ecuador as well in the locations of the mangrove concessions where it is the the fishermen the the fishery cooperative leaders who are managing these mangroves they've actually seen the decrease has been almost negligible they've maintained or in some of the locations we support they've seen mangrove area growth thanks to their protections now the the arrangement you would think is natural these are local community members fisher co-op leaders they have been working those waters for generations so it's a very logical process to say okay we should allow we should support them and allow them to manage these areas in responsible ways and it's not surprising to anyone that it works out well the trick is that the story doesn't end there when locations like that thrive they are going to become more appealing targets for illegal fishers, because they have more resources, because they have more mangroves. That is where step one, you absolutely must respectfully engage and support with a local community, empower them to manage their resources in the best way possible. But step two is then you then have to empower them to meaningfully protect those resources from outside illegal fishing. And that's where. In those cases, in these in these particular cases where we come in, we have provided vessels and you know, very basic. We're not <laughs> we're not buying anyone a, a multi-million dollar boat, but we provide them the the simple vessels they need to do the patrolling, the connections with enforcement authorities and governments and the training that they need to do it safely to make sure that when they come across illegal activities, that they can actually do something about it and provide the consequences through those partnerships with government agencies to make it come through in the end. And it, I mean, it makes a difference. (laughs) In the case of mangroves, it makes a difference for the world since they're also soaking up all of our carbon.
1: We were lucky enough to speak with representatives from two of WildAid's current programs, one from Palau and one from their work in Zanzibar. First, let's kick it over to Juma to introduce himself. Thanks. Um,
4: my name is Juma Mohamed, and I'm working for Mombau Coastal Community Network, or in other words, it's called Marine and Coastal Community Conservation Zanzibar, as a head of programs, managing all the programs across Unguja Pemba, as well as Tanzania mainland. And I'm based in Zanzibar, Tanzania.
0: Juma followed a relatively untraditional route to the world of conservation.
4: Actually, I'm from finance and banking industry. I've been working with commercial banks for quite a while before moving to my passion of conservation. Having to know that I've been born and raised in Zanzibar, the island, has always been my dream of working in the ocean and environment. I decided to move from uh, finance and investment or banking industry into conservation. So in 2019, I joined MCC as a program support, and I was actually supporting the program manager by that time. But uh, good thing that I was actually promoted to program manager, and I was actually managing all the program. And by that time, uh, laid in Mombao. A partner to provide a strengthened monitoring and control, as well as surveillance capacity uh, building to collaborative fisheries management groups on the Pemba Channel conservation area. And I was actually appointed to be the program lead of that partnership. So that is
1: how I started to work with WildAid. The Pemba Channel is a Category 6 MPA conservation area. This category is given by the International Union for Conservation of Nature and Natural Resources. Category six means it's a protected area with sustainable use of natural resources, such as fishing by locals. It is meant to both protect the ecosystem or habitat and the associated cultural and traditional values of the natural areas. It was actually established in 2005, and it's actually covering
4: around 825 kilometers square, and it's actually a uh, 3.22 uh, kilometer wide band stretching across the western coast of Pemba Island from the north to south parallel to Pemba Channel. And it's actually very important because of its regional importance of marine biodiversity, and it is widely recognized in the international importance for the reef resilience. But also, as it covers 1,000 kilometers square, it is considered as a hotspot for cetacean and has high coral and associated species diversity. That's why it has been considered very important hotspot in, in this region.
0: The Pemba channel is considered a hotspot for cetaceans, with one of the highest relative diversities and relative abundance levels for cetaceans ever recorded. But this channel is also incredibly important for the local community.
4: The marine resources are very vital for the artisanal fishing, supporting livelihood and food security for almost 191,000
1: people in the 34 coastal communities. Going back a little bit, you mentioned the MCC. What exactly is that? MCC
4: is abbreviated or the Marine and Coastal Community Conservation Zanzibar, or Mombao, which is actually widely known here, it is a local marine conservation NGO and is based in Zanzibar. It was established in twenty ten that works with the fisheries communities of coastal communities in Unguja Pemba, but also in Tanzania mainland. So um, the focus is on building capacity of these local fisheries community on how they can best manage their marine resources. For efficient monitoring and control, Mamba also focuses on working with group of communities. So we work with group of communities that formulate collaborative fisheries management group so that they can sustainably and efficiently manage these resources. In partnership with WildAid, we are actually working to enhance uh, capacity of one marine protected area in Pemba Channel Conservation Area, in which this area incorporates 52 fisheries communities and six collaborative management groups. So we are working together with WildAid to support this community as well as to enhance their capacity in the monitoring, control, and surveillance. So WIDED actually supported us in uh, building these fisheries communities and also advancing their capacity in monitoring and control and surveillance. So we started the work in 2019 by first doing an assessment to see the need and wants of these communities that we want to work with. So that's how we started.
0: And what is the MCC's actual strategy or approach for improving MPA enforcement?
4: Marine conservation areas are vast, so we normally use a centrally controlled approach to surveillance, but also to enforcement. And this is because a controlled approach can sometimes be very, very costly and often ineffective. So we decided to have a bottom-up approach where community will be involved and will be heard. And we'll fully participate from the very first moment to the last moment. So, and we believe putting community at first is actually making the whole process to involve all the stakeholders in it. So we believe in community-centered approach. So the bottom-up approach is what we normally use. And this is help in improving the efficiency. But also it is very crucial when community have a core dependence on marine resources. Uh, So it's very inclusive. That's why we decided to use a bottom-up approach. Because we believe the centrally controlled approach, it's very costly and uh, sometimes uh, doesn't build uh, trust as well as doesn't provide the ownership. So we want to build the ownership and community
1: to own the whole process of conserving these marine protected areas. So what training and tools have been provided to the local stakeholders around MPA enforcement in Zanzibar through MCC's partners? In partnership
4: with the aid, we have managed to provide a training on monitoring, control, and surveillance to collaborative fisheries management groups, in which these groups did undergo um, theoretical training, but also a practical training on monitoring, control, and surveillance. But we also train these communities on how they can effectively plan their patrols, but also how they can collect patrol data as well as write uh, patrol minutes once after they have conducted those patrols. So those are the, the tools that we have managed to develop. But also currently we have developed a pilot form digital form, of which these communities, they collect the form using the mobile phone that we have provided with uh, to them. So they collect these uh, patrol incidents so that they can later on help them in the decision-making process within these collaborative management groups.
0: So Juma, what do you hope is the future of MPA protection enforcement in Zanspar? And how do you hope the model you are putting together will influence protection in other areas outside of Zanzibar?
4: Actually, the approach that we have used, or we are now using, is not only on enforcement, because we prefer having a community-based approach. So we believe communities are the ones who should also be uh, given uh, an opportunity to conserve this area. If these community are empowered, they can be able to do more than what we think they are able to do. So, and we believe putting community uh, at the center of uh, of conservation allows these community to be able to protect them. And uh, we have a very good example on those communities that we have already started to work with, and they have already started to manage this uh, conservation area. There are some other community members from other areas that they are now coming to these pilot areas where we've started to learn and to see if they can also implement the same approach that we have used in those CMGs that we have formulated. So I think it's it's, it's a very important thing to involve community because they are the one who are actually managing these areas in an efe- a very efficient way. And they are the end users of these resources. So I think we have now seen the importance as so many communities now wants to also be involved in these kind of collaborative management groups, as well as the enforcement and protection of their marine resources.
1: And it is that collaborative nature for realistic and locally informed MPAs that is a common approach in each of the wild aid programs that we researched in putting together this episode.
0: Take, for example, our next guest. From the coast of Zanzibar, we travel 10,681 kilometers to the Pacific island of Palau. Joyce, can you please introduce yourself?
3: Yes, so uh, my name is Joyce Vale. I am the Acting Director for the Bureau of Environment. I also serve as the Protected Areas Network Coordinator for the PEN Office. So the PEN Office, we had a restructuring this uh, new administration. And so the PEN Office was just a program under the ministry, and now it's a program under the Division of Protected Areas and Species under the Bureau of Environment. So I oversee the PAN work as well as the Bureau. I was with Palau Conservation Society for 10 years as the Bubble Watershed Alliance uh, Coordinator. And then I worked with Island Conservation as a Program Manager for Palau. And then with the Protected Areas Network and the Ministry. That's me.
1: Joyce says that she has always been connected with conservation and protecting the waters around Palau.
3: I think growing up in Palau, is something that sort of is ingrained, in, I guess, because the, the culture values conservation. Conservation is not something that you do, but it's something that is within you. So it's a value that we build within ourselves. One of the high chiefs, the paramount chief uh, of Palau Raklai of Malgayok used to tell us, and I learned a lot from him working with the watershed alliance. He was always telling me, Joyce, you know, conservation is not something you said. Conservation is something in your heart. And it's something that you do because it's in your heart. So I guess, you know, growing up that way. And then, you know, my father loved the outdoors. We were always out camping or, or fishing. Or, and so we're exposed to nature, I guess, at a very young age. And one of the things that I learned growing up was my father would always tell me, if you move a rock, because I like to, you know, kind of, uh, I do my gleaning and, then, you know, I go through the rocks and stuff. And he says, if you move a rock, you put it back where it belongs because somebody lives there you know, so simple things like that sort of built that interest in nature. And then uh, at a very young age, when the Palau Conservation Society was established, I saw what they were doing, and I was very interested. But I I went into education first before I joined them. But uh, they were doing a lot of great community engagements and and campaigns on the turtle is my friend, those sort of things that really sort of Made me understand like what I really wanted to do in in life. So even when I was in education and when I was teaching, I always had like an emphasis on nature and, and, and conservation. So I guess I've I've
0: always been interested in, in
3: conservation.
0: Great. Can you tell me what is the Palau Protected Areas Network and what areas does it cover? Why are these areas important?
3: So the Protected Areas Network was established in two thousand and three. By law, so the PAN Act of 2003 recognized the important um, and the critical areas in Palau that needed conservation attention. Palau has always had conservation areas, per se, because uh, the states and uh, the Council of Chiefs, uh, the traditional leaders, have always uh, managed their resources because they are shared by the communities. So each state, well, now they call them states, used to have areas where people would, uh, I guess, fish and, and, and glean, and and they were protected and, and managed by the people themselves. And so there were times when there were also special uh, protected areas where people only go fish when there's storms. Most of the protected areas, MPAs, used to be those sites. For instance, in uh, along in the north, the Abil Channel was not a place where was a fishing area where people don't go fishing every day. It's only when there's uh, community events or uh, customary uh, events when a group of fishers would be sent by the chiefs to go get fish because it's, it's a guaranteed place to get more fish. And then later on, they knew that it was an aggregation, a spawning aggregation area for groupers and many other fishes. They've always been managing that. And then for the rest of the states, they all have those kinds of areas. Yeah, so all the states had MPAs, but they had set aside for resource management purposes. When PCS was uh, founded by Noaido, He really started that campaign on how can national support the state efforts because the states didn't have enough resources to enforce the moratoriums and the law uh, for the states. He had a vision that maybe the national can support the states to make the enforcement more efficient because the boats were getting faster, the tools were getting better we could see the changes
1: in the depletion of the resources. That was in 2003. In 2006, the Palau National Congress developed the Protected Areas Network, or PAN Act, which created this framework for a network of marine and land-based protected areas. But for programs like this, you need to have the resources and funding to ensure the long-term sustainable use of these places. Back to Joyce. In
3: 2006, The former president, Tami Ramongsao Jr., who is now High Chief of one of the states, his administration worked with the conservation community to develop a funding mechanism for PAN. And so that's when PAN Fund came into place Um, and also recognizing the Micronesia Challenge, so where that started too. And so the big NGOs like the Nature Conservancy and, and also Conservation International joined with Palau to develop uh, an investment, uh, not just for Palau, but for Micronesia through the Micronesia Challenge. And so that's how the Micronesia Conservation Trust came into place. And so now BAN has a sustainable funding mechanism where there's a, in 2008, the Congress also passed a law for the green fee.
0: When you vacation in Palau, $100 for your tourist visa bill will be contributing to this green fee. This fund goes to fisheries protection, the protected area network, and other facets of both environmental protection efforts and the tourism industry. Bhutan has already instituted a specific green fee. Hawaii is considering it, but even places like San Francisco have a visitor's fee.
1: The protected areas network only gets about $15 of that green fee but there was also a significant investment through the Micronesia Conservation Trust. All those funds support both the network and the individual states in their efforts to manage the resources in their MPAs and these important waters. Back to Joyce.
3: Well, the Palau coral reefs have always been important to the lives of Palauans. As islanders, that's where we get our protein. Other than a couple of birds, which we don't eat anymore, That's where we get our protein. So fish, clams, uh, sea cucumbers, seafood is the main staples for Palauans. At the same time, we know that without the reefs, we will not be protected. That's something that we learned from our parents growing up, is that the reefs also protect Palau. So in Palau, it's, it's funny when we get tsunami warnings, people would be, where is it going to hit and can we see it? The largest one that has, I guess, hit Palau is just under three feet by the time it gets to land because of the reef. We call it the uh, ewotelel So Ewotelel is like a fort around Palau, and then it protects Palau. So that's how reefs are important. They are the source of food, so a source of life, and then also protects us from wave surges and and tsunamis, for example.
0: In addition to the cultural and ecological importance of the reefs, the coral that inhabits those reefs are resistant to bleaching and other climate change effects like acidification. The coral bleaching during the 1998 bleaching event was as high as 90% at some sites in Palau, with the average mortality reaching around 30%. 10 years after the 2003 Protected Areas Network Act, they started to see significant recovery in the coral.
3: Through that event, it's sort of, that was a, a lesson as well, that if we keep them healthy, then they'll be able to replenish the reef as, you know, after those devastating events. Other areas like the one here in Coror, which is in the Southern Lagoon Protected uh, or Managed Area, there's a, a lagoon where they've tested the water to be very highly acidic but the corals are thriving
1: the palau international coral reef center a coral reef research institute is working with partners to continue to study how palau's corals are adapting and to find out how to continue to help these corals thrive
3: there's been sites that have been identified and probably still more that that we haven't uh, identified yet but in the northern reefs, uh, aside from the being channel, they've also identified another area that was resilient to the bleaching in 98. Yes, there are those uh, places and areas in Palau that we are keeping a uh, close eye for and, and learning from to see how we can best protect the reef or help it. Or maybe it helps us understand better how they have been able to adapt to the the change in sea surface temperature and that sort of thing.
0: Joyce, can you explain how the sites that make up the network are chosen? How are the local stakeholders involved?
3: Every state has several villages. For instance, in the state, there's five villages. Five villages, there's five council of chiefs. Each council was the authority that managed the marine area around their village. If there were any issues, the fishermen would report if in a certain area, the fish were getting fewer or sea cucumbers are dying or something. The chiefs would declare a bull or a moratorium for that area. And so people would not fish there and they would fish in other areas until they get report back from the fishermen that there is progress, something like that, then they open it up again. They've always been able to manage, and they understand the areas very well, health-wise and and
0: productive-wise. That's how the protected areas were designated. The protected areas were then created legal entities through Palau's legislative process. But Joyce has been working with a number of NGOs, like their local partners from the Palau Conservation Society, and through meeting with other groups on how to explore other areas and improve enforcement.
1: In 2018, when Joyce was the Palau Conservation Planner, she discovered that there were already assessments and studies that were done in the Northern Reefs with the states, and there was even a draft of a ranger's manual that was done with WildAid and through their partnership with the Nature Conservancy.
0: She shared what she found with her partners and the state Palau coordinators to see how they could finalize this drafted plan.
3: Because it looked pretty good, but it was never implemented or never finalized so we uh, asked the nature conservancy for assistance and they connected us again with wild aid and global parks and and so we worked with them through guidance and uh, their guidance We, we worked with the coordinators to review and update the rangers manual so in 2019 on the 16th anniversary for the Protected Areas Network. The minister then signed the ranger's manual. And so it became policy. Now we're standardizing uniforms. There's a code of conduct. And so it's, it's really made a lot of difference in how the community perceives the enforcement. Because we have really small communities. Like in the state, you would have like 300 people that live there everybody knows everybody everyone is somewhat related to each other and so the the rangers were having a tough time you know enforcing the law because you know how can you cite an uncle or an aunt or and so the focus was on was more on why we need to protect them and so they were out there sort of making sure people were complying, but more like reminding uh, the community members of why we're protecting the areas and, and, and how it's benefiting everyone in the community.
1: The rangers strengthened their community engagement and connection and leaned away from citing people to educating people on and reminding them of why these sites needed protection and their support in that protection.
0: They also bring in the Council of Chiefs a lot in these engagements, so they can help maintain that attitude and the perception of why these sites are important to their communities. Here is Joyce to tell us more about the Council of Chiefs. The Council of Chiefs are made up of
3: individuals that represent clans. So each Palawan, every Palawan belongs to a clan, an individual belongs to a family, and then a few families belong to a clan, and then there's a head of a clan. That's the chief that represents them in the council. So they still hold influence on how people behave. And and so that's sort of where they come in as a support for the enforcement. At the moment, we see a little bit of deterioration where people are beginning to see that they can get away with Things, because the chiefs don't really have full authority now that we're under the constitutional government. They know that if they were cited or uh, if uh, they violated a moratorium, they can contest that in the court of law. And, and some of them have been successful. And so they know that they have that option
1: One of the things that Joyce's team discussed with WildAid representatives was how they could integrate the chiefs and the state government system more into these management plans so they can bring in some of those more traditional systems that are so important to the people of Palau.
3: And it's evident that when we talk to the chiefs, they are more invested and more committed because you're born into your clan that has a role and responsibility within the community. It's something that you grow up with. The discipline, the the values are there rather than somebody that was hired or elected to take on a responsibility. We've always had them in the background and sort of like the safety net. So when we cannot pursue enforcement through the state or the legal system, we would resort to the the council. But there's been... uh, court cases where they lose and now they're sort of losing hope that maybe, you know, it's not so relevant anymore. That's one of the big questions. And then uh, in talking to some of the chiefs, uh, they've also uh, suggested that we bring it to the annual traditional chiefs uh, forum to see if we can come up with a better way to address that issue. Although the constitution of Palau says that they should be working parallel to each other and that uh, when in conflict, the written law supersedes, as long as it does not violate the principles of Palauan culture. What are those principles? And I think that's something that if we can define as a nation, then we will be able to solve that problem. I had a talk with my minister this morning, in preparation for coming to impact file. And his thoughts are, maybe it's not having the traditional law support the written law, but how or how the constitutional
0: government can best support what we already had. One can recognize how a cookie cutter approach for MPA protection and enforcement might not work. Especially if you weren't working with and respecting the local stakeholders. According to Joyce, WildAid has been an ally in making it work correctly for Palau.
3: Yes, um, WildAid has been a very important uh, partner. The advances, at least from my experience and for the time that I've been with the Protected Areas Network, our advances and our uh, progress in the pan enforcement have been with the partnership with wild aid. Although we have a fish and wildlife program in Palau, their training is really just through like the police academy. For the first time this year, the first law enforcement academy for conservation was held. And with the, support from uh, the Nature Conservancy and Wild Aid, of course. We developed the uh, training modules f- specifically for Pan Rangers. They will be graduating February, February 13th or something, just before we return to Palau. So we are hoping that it'll be after so we can join them and, and, and celebrate with them. The ministry and the states are excited. So that is something that we are very grateful for uh, and appreciate the partnership with Wild Aid, and we are hoping that this partnership will continue, as we feel like we're getting closer to shore. One of the main things that we wanted to accomplish was to or streamline the citation process from the state to the national AG's office. Really, there is some progress. And these progress have been possible through support from expert enforcement program from
1: WildAid. You may have noticed that new tech like drones and bleeding edge technology wasn't a priority that was mentioned in chatting with these local stakeholders. While cool technology would be rad, there are some issues with that if you go with a parachute tech policy. Back to Megan.
2: We are always looking for new technology and always testing new technology. If it's something that doesn't work well, we've probably broken it at least once. Uh, UAVs, drones. We're actually in a in a currently in a project where we are working with partners to develop unmanned surface vehicles that might be able someday be operational for protecting marine protected areas. They absolutely have a role what we have found is the challenge is that very few drones are designed with a developing country context in mind and parts that would be ridiculously simple to get where you and I are y- you and I can walk down to radio shack and get a few a huge amount of the resources that just aren't available we've used them we've used drones can be you know small quadcopter co- drones can be useful for for example, the mangroves because mangroves can be very dense. It allows you to get up and over and see see what's going on and see if there's any illegal right logging or clearing happening. They can be useful. You just have to you got to make sure the basics are there first. I think a lot of times folks decide that well, if I can use a drone or I use a you know a UAV and find the activity, then I can solve all of the the world's you know enforcement problems. It's like well, okay being able to use it to find the illegal activity is incredibly important, doing it in a cost effective, reliable manner, right? UAVs are less expensive than running an airplane over, but you got to make sure, like, don't invest in a drone before you've invested in your systems that make sure that when that drone finds illegal activity, you have a way to, you know, respond, you know how to interdict the illegal fishers. You know how to investigate to make to see if there's a deeper illegal network behind it. You're able to collect evidence and ensure that those people face consequences for that action. So you got to make sure that those steps are in place before you jump to the technology.
0: When we asked Megan what is something that's been surprising for her about developing and implementing these partnerships and projects worldwide, she told us...
2: I think the degree... Of consistency, like the number of themes and common threads. Like, I learn something new in every location I go to, but I'm rarely surprised anymore. There's a lot of consistency, no matter where you are, culturally, geographically, of what the illegal activity looks like and what the challenges are, right? The kind of challenges that are preventing these park service directors or these fisheries agency leads from being able to successfully protect their waters. And I think the other component that I just just didn't know enough about it when I first started this journey, I don't want to say how many years ago (laughs) now, was how much of ensuring that there is success is really just talking about the basics of management, like a park service enforcement division chief doesn't have a good, robust position description or a way to run background checks on the people that they're hiring. That's not sexy. That is nothing, right? (laughs) Like that is not what you see the cool videos about, but being able to get the right people in those positions will make or break the
1: effectiveness of your system. Can you elaborate? What does that mean?
2: The way we make an impact is by empowering and supporting these locals to better protect their water. So the way we can make a bigger impact as we're growing is to reach more. In the next five years, we will have grown to the point where we are supporting 250 marine areas. That's my slightly makes my palms sweaty, (laughs) big picture vision. What we've also been thinking about recently and narrowed further down on is when we are choosing our next locations, we have a whole list of criteria to find the right partners that are ready for us, that we can really help, that can make the biggest difference. In that framing, we're looking at blue carbon sites, mangroves, seagrass beds. We have recognized more and more how important they are for wildlife and humanity. So we are going to be making a special focus on empowering the people who are protecting that habitat. Keep it there. (laughs) Keep it whole. Maybe grow. And then also there have been studies conducted. The most best known one is called the 50 Reef Study that looked at which coral reefs are most likely to survive the impacts and the effects of climate change. That's an evolving science. For now, we want to make sure that we are focusing on Protecting those reefs that science is telling us is most likely to survive climate change and make sure that they are not subject to other stressors like blast fishing, illegal fishing.
0: Where do you see wild AIDS program going? What is the moonshot goal for, say, the next five
4: years? Okay, thanks. I'll switch it to Swahili so that the message can be uh, widely heard by those listening to this um, podcast. Jamii ndio ambayo ina kwa muda mrefu imekuwa ikia hifadhi haya maeneo lakini pia jamii ndio ambayo mlengo mkuu wa matumizi uh, au wa uhifadhi haya maeneo. Kwa hiyo ili kuweza kuhakikisha kwamba hizi rasilimali zinaweza kutuzwa basi inafaa jamii kuweza kuhusishwa ama kujumuishwa katika mlolongo uh, mlo wote wao hifadhi kuanzia mwanzo hadi mwisho ili kuweza kuwa na kufikia yale malengo ya 30 kwa 30 basi jamii inafaa kuhusishwa kwa namna moja au nyingine katika kuyahifadhi haya maeneo ya raslimali lakini pia jamii inafaa kupia kusikilizwa endapo itatoa maelezo yao kwani wao ni walengo wakubwa lakini wana uelewa zaidi ya sisi ambao wasomi kwa sababu mara nyingi tunaona jamii hususan wavuvi tunaona kwamba wao hawana elimu kubwa ya bahari wakati kwangu mimi naweza kusema kwamba moja kati ya wataalamu sana wa rasilimali wa hizi bahari au wanaojua sana kusiana na rasilimali za bahari basi ni wavuvi pamoja na jamii ambao inazunguka haya maeneo ya bahari au maeneo ya pwani
1: Before we wrap up and sign off, in chatting with Juma, he wanted to send a message to his Swahili-speaking stakeholders out there.
4: I'll switch it to Swahili so that the message can be uh, widely heard by those listening to this um, podcast jamii ndio ambayo ina kwa muda mrefu imekuwa ikia hifadhi haya maeneo lakini pia jamii ndio ambayo mlengwa mkuu wa matumizi au wa uhifadhi haya maeneo kwa hiyo ili kuweza kuhakikisha kwamba hizi rasilimali zinaweza kutuzwa, basi inafaa jamii kuweza kuhusishwa ama kujumuishwa katika mlolongo uh, mlo wote wa uhifadhi kuanzia mwanzo hadi mwisho ili kuweza kuwa na na, na, na na kufikia yale malenko ya 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 30 kwa 30 basi jamii inafaa kuhusishwa kwa namna moja au nyingine katika kuyahifadhi haya maeneo ya raslimali lakini pia jamii inafaa kupia kusikilizwa endapo itatoa maelezo yao kwani wao ni walengwa wakubwa lakini wana uelewa zaidi ya sisi ambao wa wasomi kwa sababu mara nyingi tunaona jamii hususan wavuvi tunaona kwamba wao hawa, hawana elimu kubwa ya bahari wakati kwangu mimi naweza kusema kwamba moja kati ya Wataalamu sana wa rasilimali wa hizi bahari Au wanao sana kusiana na rasilimali za bahari Basi ni wavuvi pamoja na jamii ambao ina, ina, inazunguka Haya maeneo ya bahari au maeneo ya pwani Koyo ni vyema pia kuwa husisha Katika mlolongo um, mzima wa uhifadhi wa maeneo haya Sante sana
0: The wild aid strategy of working directly with local partners on identifying locations, advising on governance, helping with training, and even administration only seems to be resonating with their local stakeholders and having positive effects on the species and locations they are trying to protect.
1: We hope that their model continues to produce results and spread to more locations across the globe, and help the world hit the 30 by 30 model with marine parks that are more than just paper parks or parachute policy.
0: A big thank you to our guests and a big thanks to you, our listeners. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and perhaps most importantly, share our podcast with your network and friends. Till next time, this has been
3: Ocean Ocean
0: Science Radio. Radio. Wild age, wild age, age.
1: it's the age of wild.
0: That does sound that does sound very like a D&D thing. Like, welcome to the world of fantasy name. You are <laughs> in the time of the wild age where plants have
1: <laughs> It was the Wild Age.
0: It was the Wild Age. Plants rule the domain. Okay.